Hello and welcome to the EMG Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Of late, in my solo episodes, I've been exploring some so-called alternative strategies to staying well. And many are approaches that I've had, well, shall we say, a healthy degree of scepticism about. Today's topic, mindfulness, is no different. When I was first exposed to it, well, (laughs) I was dubious beyond compare, and I brushed it off as some newfangled, cultish, woo-woo nonsense from California. Boy, was I ever wrong about a lot of things. Actually, pretty much all of it. So the concept is that mindfulness allows you to, how should we say, luxuriate in the moment, to focus on one thing properly, to ignore mental noise, to notice what's happening and just, well, letting it be. It purportedly induces calm and reduces stress and trains one to be mentally healthy and resilient, to train our brain like we do our muscles. Before I take you on my journey of enlightenment about mindfulness or meditation light, as I tend to think of it, I'm going to give you some background. And first of all, as for meditation, I've tried it a number of times, but all that happens for me is I fall asleep. Now, I've been told by some people, that's cool, that's good. But anyway, let's stick with mindfulness for now. So first of all, newfangled woo-woo stuff. Remember, that's what I said. Well, nope. Mindfulness has origins in both Buddhist and Hindu philosophies, has probably been practiced for, well, more than two and a half thousand years. I guess it's taken me a while to get up to speed, or shall we say to slow down. During the Vedic age, Buddhist masters used mindfulness to enhance meditation and reach Buddhism's ultimate goal, nirvana a state free of suffering and personal cares just disappearing, and enlightenment, unconditional happiness is achieved. So meditation probably dates even further back than that, and ancient depictions of Hindu deities such as Shiva are portrayed performing meditation. By the year 100 before the Common Era, Buddhist schools known as Mayanas were opened in India and Kashmir before spreading throughout Asia, and at these schools, mindfulness was practiced and taught, well, for centuries. In fact, in the Satipatthana Sutta from 20 years before the Common Era, Buddha emphasized the importance of the practice of mindfulness and said, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and distress, for the attainment of the right method, for the realization of unbinding. A dear friend of mine calls that letting go. Mindfulness wandered west early in the 20th century through the philosophical theories of the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung. He was heavily influenced by Eastern philosophy and Jung believed that the psyche was composed of interacting systems with complex, emotionally charged associations. Jung was famously quoted as saying, your vision will become clear only when you look into your heart, who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakens. I always loved that. But mindfulness really gained traction in this part of the world when John Kabat-Zinn, a medical professor, scientist and writer, 
created the now globally popular Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, or MBSR, program. It was back in 1971 when he was working for his molecular biology PhD at the superb Massachusetts Institute of Technology and devoting time to campaign against the Vietnam War that Dr. Kabat-Zinn was questioning his life. In fact, the concept of meditation had been introduced to him by guest speaker, Philip Kaplow, who was a, a Zen Buddhist missionary. In 1979, Kabat-Zinn founded the Stress Reduction Clinic in the basement of the University of Massachusetts Medical School, where he adapted Buddhist teachings on mindfulness into methods of reducing stress. Kabat-Zinn later developed his MBSR program, which integrated Buddhist mindfulness meditation with contemporary clinical psychological practice using what he called moment-to-moment awareness. He recruited chronically ill patients who were not responding well to traditional treatments, and he got them to participate in an eight-week daily MBSR and yoga program. Yoga is a topic that I recently covered on this podcast, and his goal was to ascertain if their health and well-being might be improved, helping them to cope with clinical problems. In fact, demonstrably and repeatedly, MBSR helped patients with effects lasting sometimes up to four years. So MBSR combines three different techniques. You may use all of them or some of them. The first is a body scan, which is a a gradual attention sweep from feet to head, focusing on any perceived sensations. It's a good exercise to use when first in bed at night prior to sleep. And actually, it's, it's the first effort I made at mindfulness. Then, sitting meditation, paying attention to one's breath. In the yoga episode, I took you through one of these exercises. This time, one should also distance oneself from thoughts that interpose I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. And thirdly, one can also do Hatha Yoga stretches if they help one relax. In 1991, Kabat-Zinn's first book, Full Catastrophe Living, Using the Wisdom of Your Body and Mind to Face Stress, Pain and Illness, sparked a growing interest in MBSR, as did various media appearances, including the PBS special, the public broadcasting special, Healing the Mind. In fact, Professor Kabat-Zinn became somewhat of a national celebrity, and his second book, Wherever You Go, There You Are, was a bestseller. Many MBSR programs opened up in the 1990s, either as part of pre-existing holistic medical programs or in hospitals or as standalone centers. Now, MBSR is used globally and has been found to be beneficial for both psychological and physical well-being showing significant positive effects in participants with a range of conditions, including chronic pain from a variety of sources, multiple sclerosis, depression, anxiety, and then things like psoriasis, diabetes, and cancer. The course has even been shown to reduce stress and anxiety and improve empathy and self-compassion in otherwise healthy people with no pre-existing conditions. Kabat-Zinn defines mindfulness as paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. He thinks we can all do it, and it's not some kind of mental trick. Rather, it's a basic human inheritance essential to life. Simple mindful moment practices like 
taking time to pause and breathe when the phone rings instead of rushing to immediately answer it. As the practice grew from 1996 with only three published studies on mindfulness in the literature, by 2006, a mere 10 years later, that number had jumped to 667. And contemporaneously with scientific interest and deployment by mental health professionals, the general public started to embrace mindfulness. With the rapid growth of cell phone applications, apps, it's become easier for people to adopt the practice. And today, more than 40% of Americans state that they meditate at least once a week. Globally, hundreds of millions use some form of mindfulness or meditation. It's also becoming more commonplace in schools to reduce burnout and stress. Apparently around 5.4% of American children practice this. Earlier, I mentioned the Satipatthana Sutta, and it outlines four foundations of mindfulness. And I'd, I'd like to explore them. It's kind of important, and it'll give you a perspective as how one might adopt this. First, there's mindfulness of the body, an awareness of the body as a combination of breath, flesh, and bone. This practice focuses on breathing exercises and the four postures, sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. Then there's mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of both bodily sensations and emotions. And you're encouraged to observe emotions and sensations, whether they're harmful or beneficial feelings, without identifying or judging them as they come and go. And again, I'm going to circle back to the way we perceive the difference between who we are and the thoughts we have. Because sometimes feelings that arise may be surprising or uncomfortable or threatening but it's important to observe and acknowledge them, and equally, to see how they dissipate. I heard it described as, we're all just building sandcastles right next to the ocean. Then there's mindfulness of the mind. It's mindfulness of mind, mood, consciousness, and mental states. It can also be thought of as the mindfulness of mental states, as this practice teaches us to observe our mental states, again, without judgment or opinion putting emotions or sensations aside, letting them come and go. Finally, and the, I guess the most challenging to understand, is mindfulness of Dharma. That's spelled D-H-A-R-M-A, Dharma. It's a Sanskrit word that has, well, basically no direct translation, but it's often interpreted as meaning natural law, righteousness, merit, or the one I like, the way things are. So in this practice, we consider awareness of how everything is, well, interrelated and impermanent. But from living in this right way, your life is said to be aligned with your dharma, which in turn brings joy and fulfillment. Again, I'm a simple soul. I'm just a surgeon. And I, I mentioned my dear friend who used the expression letting go. And I never understood what she meant by that. Now I do. So thus far, I have learned mindfulness is not new, doesn't come from California, it's not a fad or cult, and there is nothing vaguely woo-woo about it. But does it work? Does it actually have health benefits? Well, a report by the Mental Health Foundation in 2010 found that 72% of general practitioners thought that it would be helpful for their patients with mental health problems to learn mindfulness meditation skills. A few years later, in 2019, a Spanish study showed that 
practicing mindfulness was related both directly and indirectly to lower levels of anxiety and depression. And that same year, another paper looked at university students who practice mindfulness using the Calm app. It's, it's widely available for at least 10 minutes per day for eight weeks. Guess what? They exhibited reduced stress and improved self-compassion. Other examples from the literature? Well, how about a 2018 Canadian study that showed that mindfulness helped restore neural networks in people with PTSD? Another review that year from North Carolina demonstrated mindfulness being helpful in managing those who are either overweight or obese. And a review of 10 papers that year showed all studies led to improvements in Alzheimer's disease, dementia, mild cognitive impairment, and subjective cognitive decline. And these were just not patient-reported outcomes. There were increases seen in functional connectivity, brain volume, and cortical cerebral blood flow, actual observable objective measures of improved neural function. The following year, 2019, included publications showing that mindfulness reduced blood pressure in folks with hypertension, and it improved quality of life metrics in patients suffering from breast cancer. In 2020 and 2022, other groups confirmed the prior work that mindfulness helped treat obesity. So these scientific approaches very clearly show that mindfulness works. I mentioned at the beginning my experiences. Well, going back to those dark days before I bought into the concept, two things happened to change my mind. First, I was at Professor Steve Wexner's excellent colorectal disease symposium a while back, and there was a physician who gave a talk on how mindfulness could benefit surgeons like me. This is going to be good, I thought. Close your eyes, she said. And there were, you know, several hundred people in the audience, and we all did as we're told. Close your eyes and think about the most complex and challenging operation you've ever done and the most intense moment during that procedure. Now open your eyes. She then asked us to raise our hands if we were thinking of anything else other than the very precise actions during a given operative procedure. And you know what? Not a hand was raised. And she said, that's mindfulness. You were totally in that moment. Now out you go and apply it to the rest of your life. And well, I did, made perfect sense. But there was another pivotal moment that came about because I'm privileged to participate in a group called the Global Chief Medical Officers Network. It's several hundred very important people and me. We get together to share best practices and consider issues that we believe that we can affect to the betterment of mankind. At one such gathering, there was a presentation by Dr. Miriana Rosamovich, who's a senior counselor in clinical psychology at Emirates Airlines. And she talked about how they were deploying mindfulness. So in aviation, a topic close to my heart because I've been a pilot for many years, personality traits have been used to recruit aviators since 1921. In aviation, we say that a good landing is one where everyone walks away. And a great landing is where we get to use the airplane again. But joking aside, to be safe, one must accrue knowledge and skills and be physically 
and mentally fit. But what steps do we take to secure a healthy state of mind, especially when piloting a complex airplane flying at several hundred miles an hour and full of people that we're responsible for? Well, Mariana told us that she believed that incorporating mindfulness-based training would improve pilots' ability to pay attention, especially in high-demand situations or when tired or stressed, and might also reduce errors associated with being distracted. Lo and behold, her data revealed that this program objectively increased pilots' situational awareness, optimized problem-solving and decision-making skills, and improved cognitive and psychological self-awareness. As a result, the airline uses this to aid in pilot selection, as well as in initial and recurrent training, where those who receive mindfulness improve faster with positive economic benefits for Emirates. After all, think about it. A pilot who's grounded is not generating any income for their employer. Miriana noticed that mindfulness-based training for pilots not only reduced their workplace stress and improved their, their function, but the aviators also reported improvements in their personal lives. So how might a person practice mindfulness if not doing complex abdominal surgery or flying an A380? A good way to start is to abandon multitasking. Rather than drinking a beverage while driving, stop. Go to a coffee shop. Order your favorite poison in a proper cup. Sit down and enjoy the java. Nothing else, just the coffee. Focus on the coffee. The feel of a warm cup in your hands. The aroma. The texture of the foam of your cappuccino. The taste. The feeling that caffeine induces. Focus on this. The art of creating space to just be. This is not a spiritual experience. There's no out-of-body element. It's just about keeping thoughts, fears, and worries out of the present moment. It's about actually enjoying a cup of coffee. An exercise like having a coffee is a good one. Your mind will naturally wander at first. Ideas and tasks to be done, they'll pop up, but let them go and keep coming back to the coffee. It's a discipline, and you can later bring it to anything you do, everything you do. For instance, don't eat food and watch television. You'll be doing neither mindfully. During lockdown, I live alone. Um, it would have been very easy to make a meal and sit and watch a, a movie or, or a football game or something of that ilk. But I would cook a meal. I would set the table. I would sit down. I would eat my meal and I would focus on the food that I had prepared for myself and enjoy every morsel, every texture, every flavor, every scent, the way the food looked on the plate. I would picture it, imagine it, enjoy it. You know, if you do multiple things, other thoughts will more easily interpose because you're not focused on any one thing. And when thoughts interpose, that's because you're not focused on any one thing. That's the difference between you and your brain. That's just your brain being a pest. A neat trick is, well, forgive me if this sounds a wee bit nutty, a good trick is to name your brain and say something like, Reginald, that, by the way, is my brain's name, Reginald, 
I'm trying to go to sleep. You prattling on about that task I need to do tomorrow is not helping me. So shut up, Reginald. Again, sounds a bit crazy, but you get into the discipline of distancing yourself from your thoughts and allowing yourself to focus on what matters to you. And if it's lying in bed and going to sleep, well, that's a good discipline. If you want to get into this discipline, other than the coffee example, try sitting quietly in a comfortable chair with eyes closed and simply pay attention to your breathing. 10 minutes is fine, but for that time, think only about breathing. There are apps you can get or audio streams that will guide you through this process. But it's not magical. It's not mysterious. Today's hectic environment imposes so many stimuli on us. Actually, it's, it's estimated at 34 gigabytes that it's, it's hard to be disciplined and unidirectional in our thoughts. So let's look back on this little journey. I was wrong about mindfulness, but now I'm a devotee. I try to utilize mindfulness in everything I do, whether it's having my cup of coffee or whether it's talking to a friend. I'm not multitasking. I'm unitasking. The data are also very clear. Mindfulness improves performance. It reduces stress and its negative health consequences and is being adopted widely across industries. In addition to airlines like Emirates and the schools that I mentioned, the armed forces of several nations are deploying mindfulness-based stress reduction for troop preparedness and PTSD mitigation, as are several major corporations, sports teams, leading universities, and medical training programs. Mindfulness-based training is easy, and it's free. It's a great tool to employ and has the added benefit to help you enjoy other aspects of your life. So I'm a Londoner, and we have an expression here on the, on the tube, the underground, mind the gap. So I'd suggest mindfulness as a gap between a serene and a hectic life. Well, folks, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly did doing the research for it. And please come back every week for new episodes and amazing guests here on the EMG Health Podcast. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, stay curious, and stay in the moment. Bye for now.